Hello and welcome back to the NYC Young Politicos podcast. For those who this is the first time, my name is Aton Sanger. And I'm Leo Greenberg. We're so excited to be joined today by Chris Coffey, who's a leading New York political operative and the CEO of Tusk Strategies, a campaign strategy firm here in the city. Mr. Coffey has worked for Mayor Mike Bloomberg, City Council Speaker Corey Johnson, and most recently as campaign manager for Andrew Yang's 2021 mayoral campaign. Mr. Coffey, thanks so much for being here and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Honored, honored to be guest number two on your podcast. Hopefully many, many more to come. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. So our first question, right, we just recently found out that former Mayor Bill de Blasio has decided not to run for governor of the state of New York. And so we were wondering, why do you think he made that, made this decision and how do you think this impacts the race moving forward? Yeah, I mean, um, wow, what a loss. I mean, I'm, I'm bummed. I actually am bummed because I was looking forward to um, pundicizing on Bill de Blasio for the next several months. Um, you know, listen, uh, Governor Hochul raised $22 million in a very, very 21 point something million dollars in a very short period of time. Uh, she, there's a poll that came out yesterday by Sienna that has her in very, very good shape. She's getting things done. She's getting along with the mayor. She's um, putting ambitious plans out. Uh, she's doing well with COVID. It's an uphill battle. Um, and I would just add to that that, you know, Jamani Williams uh, is is doesn't appear to be getting out of the race. Jamani does best in Brooklyn, which is Bill de Blasio's home borough, and also does best with uh, people of color, especially black voters. Uh, also, Bill de Blasio's, um, to the extent he has a base, that's his base. That's what elected him uh, with progressive white votes in 13 and 17. A lot of those progressive white votes are somewhat disenfranchised with him now. So I don't know that they would turn up for him. So he would really need those black voters. And it's just hard to see um, them voting for de Blasio in any meaningful numbers with Jamani Williams in the race. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, one question that I have is there's a story today in Politico, which um, there was a quote that called Hochul a juggernaut. And as you were saying, she's gotten a lot right in the past few months, and it seems like she's built up a big polling lead. So I guess my question is, how much do you really think that this portrayal of her as a juggernaut who sort of won the invisible primary against Tish James and is now kind of cruising to uh, a primary victory is right? And how much do you think it's adjusting to an incumbent who is getting the full advantage of her office? How much credit do you give Hochul? Yeah, sure. I have a, on the one hand and on the other hand answer. So on the one hand, you should Google Yang and Juggernaut and see how that did. Uh, on the other hand, um, listen, she's, uh, she's strong. She's, uh, her polling is, she's, you know, so here's, every governor is a reaction to the last governor. Every mayor is a reaction to the last mayor. So um, Governor Hochul walks into office, gets along with people, um, shows competence, but not in a hostile way, open, friendly. Um, and there's a honeymoon period that we're in right now where she's going to get the benefit of the doubt by voters, by editorial boards, by reporters, by donors, by everyone, all because she's not Andrew Cuomo. Um, and in the same way, you're watching Eric Adams at the city, you know, by not being Bill de Blasio, working hard, showing up for work early, taking the subway, doing, you know, be, doing the symbolic stuff that de Blasio just hated, didn't like doing and wasn't good at. They're both in a honeymoon 
period. And one of the things that works for them on honeymoon is getting along with their counterparts, right? So you're seeing a lot of them. I think my guess is you're going to see the governor and the mayor together 75 times between now and her primary, which also happens to be now and when the city's budget is due, um, which is, you know, obviously where, and, and where legislative season ends in Albany, which is where the city is getting a lot of the things that the city needs. So um, I think she's in a really good place. Listen, a month ago or, or six weeks ago when SOMOS was happening, it was right, which is a big uh, political conference in New York, where Tish James was there, the governor was there. A lot of people were talking about Tish as kind of the rising threat to the governor. They've managed to figure out a way by raising a lot of money, by having good poll numbers, by being competent to keep Tish out of the race. That was job number one because she was the most threatening potential person to run against the governor. Now, no offense to everyone, but like now we're up against the B team, right? Tom Swazi is not a serious threat. Um, he could, doesn't mean he won't become one. It doesn't mean that he can't be a serious threat, um, but it's gonna be hard for a congressman who's relatively new uh, from a part of Long Island where I think the governor's gonna do pretty well um, to eat into the governor's uh, lead. The governor's gonna do really well upstate. She's gonna do really well in Long Island. And if you had to guess right now, if you think about those 2021 Democratic primary voters for, for the mayor's race, I assume that Garcia voters are going to go to Hochul. Um, I assume Yang voters are going to go to Hochul. And I think a lot of Eric's vote, Mayor, Mayor Adams voters, are probably going to go to Hochul too. Now, maybe some Black votes will go to Jamani if there's a Black guy in the race, maybe. And there's certainly a bunch of maybes that could happen. But it's just hard to see how, you know, it's hard to see it being, you know, if the governor does well and keeps doing what she's doing, it's hard to see her getting beat, certainly with this crowd. Long answer. Sorry. No, that uh, that makes sense. Um, and you mentioned Eric Adams um, and his sort of outer borough coalition, a lot of voters of color in that, obviously. And I think in his first two weeks, you've kind of had. So on the one hand, the poll that came out yesterday, I think had him at 63 percent approval, um, which obviously he's still in his first two weeks. He's kind of having a honeymoon period of his own. So we'll we'll see how that number shifts. But he. At the other, uh, on the other hand, you also see these stories about his uh, conflict with the city council and um, his appointing his brother to the NYPD. So my question is, how much do you think the stuff that's getting play in the political world and these stories about the city council or concerns about nepotism or corruption, do you think that the reason we're not seeing that reflected in public opinion polling yet is because we're in a honeymoon period and it kind of will bleed into that? Or do you think, do you kind of buy into Adams's narrative, which is that there's a difference between people on social media and people on social security? Which, which version of that do you think we'll see play out as he moves past his first few weeks? Is that an actual Eric Adams line? I could see I him so. saying I that. in his victory speech. I could yeah. Yeah. I could see him saying that. I didn't, I haven't heard that before, but um, listen, they won in part by not listening to the noise every day, right? They, they had a plan. Their plan was largely based on working really hard and talking about crime and, and, and showing up uh, in a way that was very, very effective and won them a lot of votes. And they did not listen to the daily um, kind of insidery story, right? The Politico story about New Jersey and some other stuff just didn't, it didn't, it didn't kind of resonate beyond the 300 people that were paying attention to the race on, on a daily basis, as I can attest super well. Um, that being said, you know, like uh, schools are open right now 
and we don't have to worry about schools closing. So for lots of parents, even when schools were open, you know, the, the messaging was like, well, but the UFT is going to get them closed. And so I think there are these kind of big shifts that are obviously going to be more important to the average New Yorker is going to care a lot more about schools being open um, and the mayor being aggressive about trying to bring quality of life and other kind of crime issues down and back into the forefront. That's going to be a lot more important than whether um, Mayor Adams's brother works for the city or not. Um, that being said, um, it would be a little bit hypocritical for me to say that the gym mattered for de Blasio and killing the groundhog mattered and like all of the things you can rattle off the top of your head, but it doesn't matter for Adams. I, I tend to think if you're doing a good job and you're addressing the things people care about and you're working really, really hard and people like you, um, they're, they're going to put up with a higher level of, um, you know, kind of personal stuff. Um, people didn't, I don't know that people cared about Mike Bloomberg not being disclosed where he was going on the weekends when he was out of town. People thought he worked really hard. So like, all right, he's, he's gone one weekend a month. Like, who cares? Like, all that we care about is crime is down, schools are open, garbage is getting picked up. Um, and I think that's true for, for Adams too. We'll see. Um, you know, I don't, that, that only stretches so far. So, you know, if, if they do something colossally um, stupid, which there's no reason to think they will, then then that that'll obviously get noticed, and and there's only so far you you can stretch that. I think the city council, you know, the speaker thing. There's seven people that care about it, right? They they're, they all they all work for the city council. Those are the people that that care about it. council members and people who work at the city council. That being said, like I don't think I would have done what they did, and I didn't even it didn't totally make sense to me why they were doing it. But you know that that by the way that could affect. Uh, them going in on, on uh, Francisco Moya could affect their legislative progress in the city council more than it's going to affect like what New Yorkers think about Eric Adams and the job that he's doing is my guess. Right. Um, and then just, I think it was either today or yesterday, uh, Mayor Adams was talking about how like he doesn't have one singular public policy idea for, for his administration, like some previous mayors had coming in where like their campaign was focused on one big idea. Uh, and he was sort of focused on like, I guess it was technology or making things work, right? His first few weeks have been centered around get things done, get stuff done. So where do you really see, right? For Mayor um, de Blasio, it was uh, the universal pre-K. What do you really see as this like idea or concept or policy for Mayor Adams, which will be sort of like, at the end of his first term will be something that people are looking back on uh, as something that he accomplished or that he's trying to accomplish. Well, I don't, you know, you, I, you, you are too young to remember. It's just crazy for me to say now I feel old. Um, but, you know, when, when Rudy Giuliani ran in 1993, he was only judged on, on crime. Like that's it. And it wasn't, you know, there, it was like New York was in a moment of decay you know, Times Square was a mess. There were squeegee men, all of the things that, um, you know, now things had started to get better under Dinkins, but Rudy ran on crime. It was like, we needed someone who's going to, now he did, he went way too far on a whole bunch of different issues and, and, they, and, and the way that they did it, um, we are still paying the price for, but he drove crime down from 22, 2100 murders a year at its peak in 1990 uh, to, you know, I think under 300 in the best de Blasio year. 
um, and it went down, you know, all through through Bloomberg as well, majorly. Now it's gone back up. Um, now it's not back up to 2000, um, but it's back up to where people uh, feel less safe. There, you know, the crime index last year was higher than it's been since 15 or 16. Um, and so I think it's 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 really really simple. If 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 crime is going up over the next couple of years, uh, and the trend gets worse and worse, then I think people are going to not, you know, people are going to hold that. That's what Mayor Adams ran on. Um, if he can get folks back to get some of those numbers back down, uh, then I think that's what people uh, that 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 feeling of safety I think is what people are going to hold him on. That is his one thing. He ran on it. Uh, very, very well. Uh, and if crime is going down, or at least the trend has stopped going up, I think he'll be in a he'll be in a good place. One question I have is, I've seen a lot of people who are concerned about safety, and I think, perhaps think of themselves as even to the right of Adams on some of these safety questions saying that he has to be more explicit than he was in his campaign. And for example, calling out or publicly opposing the new policies that Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg has put in place um, and other things like that. How do you think if Eric Adams is trying to keep his winning coalition, make sure that he's well liked by Democrats, including the kind of Manhattan uh, Catherine Garcia voter that probably didn't vote for him in the primary and did vote for him in the general and is maybe still somewhat ambivalent about him. How do you think he walks the line in not only his policy, but his rhetoric about public safety issues? And how confrontational do you think he needs to be with other elected officials or even other Democrats in, um, in order to kind of maintain his law and order appeal that I, that I think drove him in the campaign? Do you, think, do you think he's going to be able to walk that tightrope? And, and how do you think, how do you see that playing out? So- um, the problem with the tightrope and, 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 you know, I, I just, Andrew Yang, three months before the election had this coalition of like Orthodox Jewish voters, Asians, and then at the time people forget, but young white voters, especially not just white, but mostly young white voters who happened to be really progressive. Um, that was his, you know, before some of the things that got him into trouble, um, that was the coalition and his poll numbers were through the roof because young people loved him. The problem with that coalition is um, two of those groups are like this, right? So young progressives are probably not going to agree with Orthodox uh, Jewish voters on a lot of issues. There's some where they there's some where that's not the case, but by and large, those are if you're if you're talking about Israel, for instance, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, there is a movement within progressive politics to be much less supportive of Israel. Certainly 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it would have been like insane for any Democrat to be um, really tough on Israel. Um, so the Adams coalition um, is largely not like um, opposed. It's, it's, it's largely in sync. The one place that requires, and there's more than one, but the obvious place that requires some finesse is he has moderate white voters who many of whom voted for him or Garcia or ranked him second or Yang second and him, you know, that, that put Eric on their list. And then he has um, a big coalition of black voters that were really his bedrock, um, all of whom want to see public safety addressed. 
but there's a difference, I think, in I, I, I think going after uh, the newly elected black district attorney uh, carries with it some trepidation or some cause for trepidation. So I think what you saw when that memo went out is the police commissioner addressed it immediately in a letter that came out hours at maybe like 12 hours after the memo came out. Um, I, I I'm guessing, but I assume that that memo response came from City Hall and went through the police commissioner because it gave the mayor a little bit of distance in in that. Um, I do think this is a place where um, the mayor is, uh, you know, I'm sure disagrees all sorts of ways with the DA's memo, but I'm sure also wants to be careful in letting the process play out and addressing, you know, making sure his police or the police do what they do, making sure that there, there's a, a process for meeting with and trying to work out some of those issues with the district attorney. Um, but you know the other thing, and I, I didn't touch on this when you when you when you asked what's his number one issue, and I said it's crime, it's public safety. It's like yes and no. He he was uniquely qualified to also run on yes, we're going to bring public safety down, but we're going to do it fairly, right? Like we're not going to have black kids that are thrown up against the car for walking down the street back to back to home three nights a week, um, or or ever. And so I think he's it's not he, he was able to run having been a cop being a black man on, on, we are gonna address crime, but we're not gonna have kids feel ostracized or abused. Um, and, I, and I think that that's an important, like that, that is super important. Those are two legs of a stool, uh, whatever the right expression is. Um, so your question about, like, I think he's got, he's gonna, he, he, he's gonna, it's easier for him to get into a fight with Tiffany Caban about what words he uses to describe delivery workers or what words he uses, like that is a fight that you can see that he relishes and that he is convinced he's, he is, he is 100% right on. And almost like he's annoyed that he's in a fight with these folks, like, 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 it's, like it's, whereas the fight with Bragg is, is, is a little bit different. And he's, he's, he's a little bit more careful on that. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Long answer number five. Uh, and then just sort of going back into sort of the campaign, right? As we mentioned, you were the campaign manager for Andrew Yang last year, and you had previously, I believe, started back in, I think, 2001 as a, a member of the Bloomberg campaign. So from 2001, and I guess you also 2009, you also were working for the Bloomberg campaign. And then last year when you were managing the Yang campaign, what sort of shifts in the demographic of the New York City electorate have you seen? Um, and also like in terms of their ideologies and everything as well. Uh, and then also specifically with like sort of the, as you mentioned when talking about some of what made up the uh, electorate for Yang at the start, um, in terms of the younger voters, what have you sort of seen from when you started working for Bloomberg and then recently? Um, as, I, by the way, my... My first campaign, I was nine years old and um, I was handing out leaflets for Ed Koch. So I think eight, eight years old, nine years old. So I think I beat you guys by, I don't know, I don't know Eitan, when you started doing campaigns, but I, I, I was, my mom was Ed Koch's chief of staff. And so I would get like schlepped to the corner of 72nd and Broadway to like accost poor voters on their way to the polls and like hand stuff out. Um, the city's changed a lot. Democratic primary voters have changed a lot. Um, in some ways, and then in some ways they haven't changed at all. Um, the thing that is most noticeable, 
and sad is the is is the issue I think I just touched on, which is in 2001 when Mike Bloomberg and I was like I was like an advanced guy on that campaign, but I, I did all three of his campaigns. In the first campaign, right after Mike took office, um, and I think I have the chronology right, there was a terrible bus explosion in Jerusalem, and he almost immediately went to the airport, got on a plane, and and went and rode a bus. And I want to say it was early January of '02. I mean, it was right after he took office. Remember, this is after 9/11. Uh, the city is just in a in a very very different place. Um, I don't know if that if if and all through like he I went to Israel with him five times, four times, four times I think. Um, he was in Israel more than I like. He was there at least a couple of times that I wasn't there, so he had to be there I don't know, six or seven times or something. Um, and it was, it was there. There was no question that the mayor of New York City was going to be a strong defender of Israel. Zit, full stop. Um, today, that's it's it's much much less clear. It's much less black and white. Um, and there is among, I would say, under thirty-five year olds in the Democratic Party. Um, it's just a different place on Israel. And I, you know, there's all, there's, we could get into the 3000 reasons for why um, you, you, you guys were both following the mayoral campaign pretty closely. Uh, the most contentious moment that we had on the Yang campaign in the campaign was uh, Andrew's tweet about Israel, which was actually very, 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 very similar to Eric Adams tweet about Israel. I think Eric pulled his tweet down. I think I think we left ours up, but then we put out a, a, a blog post the next day or something like where we, you know, the people that were with us thought we were backtracking. Um, it was like, how could we offend the most people fastest? If we like, if I had done a memo on how we could like get the most people angry at us the fastest, that would have been the that would have been the course we would have picked to to do that. So it you know it was it was it was tough. You had. There, there was literally nobody in New York City that was paying attention to the Paris race who was happy with Andrew's tweet and the reaction to the tweet the next day. If you were happy with one, you were unhappy with the other. Um, and I just think it's, it's, it's a tough issue. And I don't know the full diagnosis you could have 10 podcasts on. But, you know, within the Democratic Party, um, there's, there is a huge split. When Andrew would walk down the street after that tweet, we had people coming up to him um screaming baby killer pa palestinian you know it, you know um god i don't like uh, apartheid supporter like i i i mean it it was and it was a really interesting thing because the press wasn't really fixated on the tweet until later and elected officials weren't really fixated on the tweet so the, the one of the metrics that i used was like how are the press and how are the elected officials but when you walk down the street uh, those two, three days after the tweet, he had people, you know, 27, 32 years old, sc screaming at him. People that I was like, I, I didn't even know you were paying attention to the Bears race. And they're screaming at him as if, um, and so there is this thing that, you know, folks who believe deeply in Israel's right to existence and in the future of Israel, um, we will have to address because otherwise, um, if, if it's young voters, they're going to keep you know, you're gonna get more and more of those voters as they get older, they will not, it's not like they're gonna to get to 40 and be like, you know what, now I'm an Israel supporter. So, um, 
there's there's other there are, there are other issues as well, but that one is is one that I I feel like is is notable and reflective of some other things. Young voters tend to be more progressive than uh, young white voters, especially tend to be more progressive. Yeah, that's really fascinating, and I can I mean I can attest that it was among my peers, uh, teenagers. It was probably the moment in the mayoral race that got the most buzz on social media and the most. Um, emotional response from, from people um, online. And I can you talk a little more about uh, like the dialogue in the Yang campaign in those few days and, and what, because I remember when he put out the statement clarifying, he, he mentioned that there had been a reaction among staff and that it was something that was present both in the reaction from voters, but also within the campaign team. So can you talk about what that was like and, and how you think Maybe how you think a staff in 2001 that was 20 years older um, would have been different from a staff in 2021 that probably was a lot of those under 35 people in just reacting to that as part of a campaign. Well, that's a good question on the staff, uh, the staff issue. Right? I mean, you know, social media wasn't there in 2001, so you know, you would you just wouldn't have had the kind of the statement. Uh, presumably would have gone through some sort of, you know, in 2001, there were a couple of news cycles a day. And in 2021, there's just a constant amount of pressure, which as a campaign manager, you have to do a better job of being like, okay, I hear the pressure, but let's take a few minutes. Look, we don't have to win every hour. And I think especially there, there are some communities where winning that hour, like if we don't win this hour right now, we've lost the whole race. Like, like Eric Adams tweeted about it, like we're going to lose, you know? And so you get out, it's like, guys, if, if, if we win the entire community and lose the entire community based on each tweet of that moment, um, we're probably in trouble. But, you know, there, there was um, one of our, and, and, you know, we had David Schwartz, who's our uh, Jewish affairs um, and, and maverick political expert, was, was, is a very, very talented operative who did a great job of taking someone like Andrew, who had never stepped foot in Williamsburg or Borough Park uh, before he ran, and 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 getting endorsements from like three quarters of the leadership of the Hasidic community of Brooklyn uh, in a very very short period. Um, so I was always predisposed to listen to David. Um, he was hearing from folks with within his community that night, especially that this was a horrific act and that we should condemn it. Uh, and so as the campaign manager, I, uh, you know, thought about it quickly. There were a lot of things going on. I, it, it was not something that like we sat down and had a policy meeting on. He sent a tweet. Uh, I approved it. Andrew, Andrew typed it and sent it. Um, so that was how the tweet went out. Uh, it was on me to say like, hey guys, let, let's like, it didn't, it didn't occur to me as someone who, you know what? I mean, this is a good example. I'm over 40, just barely, having grown up in a democratic party that is uniformly pro-Israel. And so I, I should have I had more foresight over how fired up the tweet was gonna make a lot of people and I didn't, and that's certainly on me. Um, within the campaign, uh, there were a lot of young, I mean, we, we were just a different kind of campaign. In March and, and February, we had like 5,000 volunteers. And, and by the way, they were real volunteers. They were people that, some of whom had come here from other places. They'd been on the presidential. They were camping out. They were showing up at all our events and they were handing out literature and they were an army. We, we did petitions 
without paid without any paid operatives like we got all of our no clubs no like just all volunteers um and many many of those volunteers felt after that tweet like they did not have a part in the campaign andrew and i got on a zoom the night of the tweet or the next the next night i guess um and addressed hundreds of volunteers um many you know some, some of whom were crying over it uh and were, and were just really really upset that they felt like the tweet didn't speak, wasn't in Andrew's voice and didn't speak to the Andrew that they knew who, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, I was, I was surprised by the reaction, by the strength of the reaction to a tweet that again, was not at all different from other candidates tweets, but, um, you know, AOC jumped in and chose to go after Andrew and other folks did the same thing. Andrew put out a clarification blog post, which, you know, we did, you know, I, at, at that point, like, you know, he said what he said, he might as well just go with it. Um, but the, the blog post, which didn't, I, you know, was not a flip-flop, was, was certainly characterized as a flip-flop, even though, you know, he could read it and, he, he explains why he did it. I don't think it was a flip-flop, but either way, I, we knew that it was going to be called a flip-flop and it was. And um, So we had a lot of staff members who were unhappy with it and unhappy, you know, that m most of whom were young and, and felt differently than Andrew on Israel. Um, and, uh, and, and the same is true with volunteers, more so with volunteers. Yeah, so just continuing on that, topic of younger voters, younger volunteers and stuff as we start to wrap up here, what advice or ideas you have for like the younger people who are interested in the campaigns and are interested in different issues for how like sort of getting involved in making like the biggest impact on the campaign or issue based level, how, how can they make sure that their voices are being heard in a way which is not make look some naive young children, but sort of people who are knowledgeable and educated. Well, I think, I mean, I think you did a good job in the race. How many people did you get to the forum? I think it was like a few hundred, yeah. You know, it's really important. My, my first, so, you know, if you're talking about operatives, my first campaign was Mike Bloomberg's campaign in 2001. I was 21 years old. Um, and I was assigned to like a field job on the campaign. And I showed up every morning at like seven o'clock in the morning and was the last one to leave for the first month. I was like, I'm going to be there first. I'm going to leave last. And... By the way, I think I'd read that in Mike Bloomberg's book, like be the first one to leave, be the last one, be the first person there and the last one to leave and you will get noticed more. And that that's like one day before he was announcing he was running, uh, the woman who ran the advance team was like, I need someone to help me carry this podium to the event. Like I need someone, I need someone, I need someone. I happen to be there. I think actually I pulled an all nighter the night before I'd gone out it was a friend of mine's 21st birthday and we were out all night. And then I just like rolled straight into the office the next morning. But because of that, I was in a really good place uh, to be the one who carried the podium to the event. And then at that event, it was like, all right, well, you know how to carry a podium. Like, can you go advance the next event? You just bring the podium and get it set up. So I think, you know, I was in a good, I was in a good, a good place and a little bit of luck. And I think folks that want to be operatives, um, you know, I meet with people all the time uh, who are looking for jobs. And I try to tell people like, you should expect to do everything. You don't expect to be a senior strategist and the campaign manager uh, the moment you join, you should expect to like go sign petitions, carry petitions on the street. Like that's how people get started. And it's a little cliche to say that, 
but it is important to learn, like I know what it's like to carry petitions on the street. And when you're directing a thousand people to carry petitions, it is important to know that they need hand warmers when it's freezing and that they like know that they're gonna be outside for eight hours. Um, I don't think that's exactly your question on, on the policy stuff. Um, I think, you know, but being out there and being, you know, having a voice is super important. If you, if you I assume you're both Democrats. Yes. Um, I assume this could be wrong. Never assume too much, but you're pro-Israel, right? Like, I think if you want, if, if Democrats, if we are going to, uh, you know, advance on this issue and have a real dialogue, it's going to take a lot of different people having, having a lot of different open minds. I think there's a tendency these days to just like know your position and not listen to other people. And it's super important to try to hear all of the different sides so that you can come to a place and advocate for your place even better knowing what all of the positions are. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, and definitely words of wisdom for Eitan and I and lots of other young people who are interested in politics and being a part of campaigns, especially here in the city. Um, so Chris, thank you so much for joining us uh, and being a part of this project that Eitan and I have gotten started over the past few weeks. Um, for everyone listening, stay tuned. Uh, NYC Young Politicos is now a weekly project. So check back with us next week. Um, we're hoping to have more guests on in the near future. As always, let us know what you think. You can email both of us. Both uh, Eitan and I are also active on Twitter, so you can reach out to us there. Um, Thank you all very much for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of NYC Young Politicos.